The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Gene Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Today, my guest is Chris George. Hi, Chris. G'day, Dave. Now, this is going to be an interesting one because you are one of the very early uh, WASP helicopter pilots of the Royal New Zealand Navy. Um, Can you take me back to the beginning and tell me where you, um, where you grew up, where, where you were born, where you grew up, and uh, your early background, um, just to set the scene. Sure, I'm uh, off a dairy farm in uh, South Taranaki. Um, I joined the, the Navy as a, a watchkeeping officer cadet in uh, 1966. I, was, um, I wasn't the commissioning crew of HMNZ Waikato, which was our first aviation uh, capable frigate, but I joined Waikato uh, immediately and got back to New Zealand. Okay. Uh, and that's when I was first exposed to um, to the embarked aviation side. Uh, and Bob Carney was the, um, the flight commander at the time. You'll remember his name perhaps from the earlier uh, blogs on, on your site. Yes. Yeah. Now, um, obviously, 1966 helicopters are fairly new in New Zealand I mean there weren't too many around at that time um do you remember the first time you ever saw a helicopter yeah I'm, I'm trying to think um 
It would have been an, an Air Force helicopter, I, I guess, uh, um, either a, a Bell 47 Sioux or, um, or, or uh, Huey. So I, not, I would not, not that long before you joined the Navy then, because they really only just came in about a year before that. So Yeah, not, not, very, not very much before then at all, no. Okay. So when you joined the Navy, was that your intention to get into aviation or did that, did that develop once you were in the Navy? I, I recall that uh, it, it was my intention to, to eventually uh, join uh, aviation. I was well aware that aviation was coming in the New Zealand Navy. I joined in 66, so Waikato would have been in build then. Yep. Um, it would have been a pretty tenuous dream, but I was very young um, and, and it just happened to, to work out. You know, um, you, you had to actually qualify as a bridge watchkeeping officer before you could commence flying. So that was a precursor. So I did that and then went flying in 1971. I'm pretty sure it was always my aspiration to fly. Yes. OK. So. Um, we. When you say a bridge watch keeping off officer, what was the what was the role of that? That's the chap that stands on the bridge uh, and uh, drives the ship. Really simply. Oh right. Okay. Okay. So um, did did all of the pilots have to go through that before they yes. went to aviation? Okay. Interesting. Yes, and I, I think that was uh, pretty routine in the Royal Navy as well. It it, it was uh, designed to to instill in the flight commander an understanding what was going on with the ship. Right. Um, and, and if I had to had to get across one particular thought with uh, embarked aviation or small ships aviation anyway, it, it would be that the flight was part of the ship. It was, was not a test match operation. You know, you got on with flying as the ship required. Yeah. And um, it really, the operation, the flying operation really depended on the team, as I said in one of my emails to you, um, and um, the flight commander needed to need to understand that his operation down on the back end of the ship was not to hold the bridge up and not to constrain the, the movement of the uh, of the ship or the, the maneuver ability of the ship yeah. whilst he did aviation. And the bridge must also understand that uh, when the aircraft is being ranged and started ready to to fly, it's extremely vulnerable. So for that that sort of five minute window, teamwork is absolutely critical. And, and where flights tended to come undone was where that occasion that occasionally broke down the uh, the communication. So that's why you wanted the flight commander to have good uh, um, understanding of what was going on in the ship, every part of the ship. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, so let's uh, talk about you are now starting your training. Um, you went off to England to do that, is that right? No, no, I did a, a standard uh, Air Force uh, wings course, uh, okay. 771 wings course down at Wigram. Yep. It was the, uh, the standard uh, Air Force wings course on Harvard and Devon and then um, I, whether to do my rotary, yes, I did the rotary conversion at Wigram as well on, on Sioux. Okay. And then after I completed that, uh, went to UK. So quite a long training pipeline. Um, and 
because, uh, as I said in my email, the, the WASP was, was generally a second tour aircraft. By that I mean your second aviation job. You went to a, a larger aircraft to, to learn the ropes and become familiar with, with aviation a bit before you became a, a manager of, of a flight. So um, in my case, I went to um, um, Wessex 5 with um, 845 Squadron or 707, 845, and then 846 Squadron, which are okay. commando squadrons. Right. So um, tell me about that. What, what were you doing? You say commando squadrons. Are they, are they working with the commandos then? Yes, with the Royal Marines, and uh, um, I, I actually used the uh, the nickname for the squadron. I, I picked the, the the lesser used one in my email. That they were called jungly squadrons generally, not squadrons, jungly squadrons. And uh, you're right, they um, the squadron uh, embarked in then HMS Hermes, long gone, uh, and uh, provided the amphibious uh, capability needed to get the Marines ashore. Okay. Uh, so that was the bread and butter, and we did a lot of um, a lot of uh, continuation training because, again, uh, embarking and disembarking a commando is is a is is a complex task, um, and it requires just a lot of uh, sometimes boring practice of of loading and unloading things in the correct order uh, across the the shoreline. Right. Okay. Okay. So you're um, you're landing on the Hermes was an uh, aircraft carrier, wasn't it? It was. Yes. Yes. Um, it, so was your first uh, shipborne landing on that carrier, or had you done something else before to train up? No, we would have done. Um, we would have done. Trying to think, we would have done deck landing training on a, a smaller ship. The RN at that time ran a deck landing training ship. I just forget the name of it now, but right. uh, we would have we would have done um, uh, a number of landings and become familiar with landing on a small small piece of real estate before going to to Hermes. It was much the training ship was much smaller. Also at Portland, there was a thing called the dummy deck, which was a um, just a barge like structure out in the harbour which had a, I recall, a, a sort of uh, housing on the front end to, to stir the air up a little bit so you experience the, the turbulence of, of landing on. Yeah. And we do that day and night and then go out to the training ship a little bit later and then embark with the squadron okay. uh, in, in HMS Hermes. Okay. Uh, how many helicopters were in the squadron on board Hermes? I think the uh, the allocation was uh, 14, 14 wow. Wessex 5, which was the twin engine Wessex, a beautiful aircraft to fly, lovely, and uh, with twin gnomes. And I think we have 14 aircraft with the, the hope of having, uh, with with the normal expectation of having 12, 12 available at any one time, particularly for a uh, amphibious landing. Okay, interesting. And uh, what else was on board the, the carrier at the time? What, what were the uh, aircraft? We, we, we didn't have any fixed wing uh, when I was there. Um, the fixed wing days of Hermes had, had finished, the oh, uh, arrestor wires and um, catapult had been removed. It was a amphibious uh, uh, carrier. Um, 
at that time, there was uh, HMS Bulwark and HMS Hermes. Okay, okay. I, I didn't realise that uh, that Hermes had just become a helicopter carrier. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and and so, I mean, a carrier is a big ship. How many people would have been on board? For was it just the one uh, helicopter squadron, and that's it? Is it just you guys? No, or? we had a we had a, a seeking squadron as well, providing the ASW screen. Yep. Uh, and the and the um, Wessex Fives, which was the Embark Squadron was A45. Um, and the Commando also operated a couple of Scouts, which is the Army version, the skidded version of the Wasp. Oh, yes, yes. And they used that for communications and, and um, hash and trash. Okay. Uh, but uh, with that, you've got all your maintenance crews down in the hangar decks and all that sort of thing. And I mean, there must have been a few hundred people on board, I guess. Yes, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't even guess the uh, the complement now, but uh, it would certainly more, more than a couple of hundred. Um, it would be. I, I, I don't want to give you a false figure. Um, I don't know what what its complement would be. I'm sorry, Dave, but it's right. cert certainly many hundreds. Yes, yes. So um, at that time, uh, early seventies, what was the what was the purpose of the ship? I mean, was it just you know waiting for trouble to happen so you guys can go in and drop the marine somewhere, or were you patrolling? What were you doing? Were... Um, well, a good part of the time was uh, exercising. It was essential to maintain currency with the different commandos. There, there were a number of different commandos um, stationed. There were cold weather commandos and tropical commandos. Okay. Um, and uh, we spent a lot of time working in Norway at that time uh, in the cold weather. Yeah. That yep. was with a commando, commando um, uh, barracked in the, in the north of England. And the, the Southern Commando, uh, or I, I shouldn't call it a Southern Commando because that's not its name. Um, and I don't want to use the numbers of the commando because I'll get them wrong after all this time. But there was another commando down in the south, which we used to embark and then go and exercise in the Mediterranean. Um, the, the exercises in Norway were part of uh, UK's uh, commitment to, uh, at that time, I guess, NATO. Um, to be maintaining a, a presence and a capability in cold weather. Yep. That was quite demanding. And then Mediterranean was, was much more pleasant. I, I recall we we operated in various places. And that, that year, 1974, was when um, Cyprus um, was invaded by Turkey. Right. And uh, we, we spent a, a, an interesting period uh, uh, taking refugees off and and ferrying them around Cyprus, bringing them to safety. All right. Uh, uh, so when, when you when you say it was a presence just to that, and and also maintaining currency and in, in amphibious operations, and we also went across to Canada and uh, operated with the Canadians in the north of that country because the cold weather operations are quite quite demanding. Um, not a problem when you get everything right, but uh, things can go quickly, quickly pear-shaped. Um, yes. So it was 
maintaining currency most most of the time, just being familiar with operating at sea and operating in the different environments. Okay, yeah, really interesting. Uh, and uh, how many uh, commandos would have been in each of those units that you'd embark? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> uh, uh, I'll guess. I'll get us. I'll guess at uh, a thousand. A thousand guys. It's okay. Sort of like a battalion. I, I could be. I could be wrong there. Dave, um, I'll follow up and give you correct figures. All right, can we? Yeah, yeah, can yeah. We no, agree on that? no worries. I was just trying to get a ballpark figure to think. I mean, if yeah. you were going to, um, you know, land commandos on, on a particular place on, on a shoreline or whatever, uh, you guys in the helicopters would make several trips. I guess that you wouldn't be able to do. Oh yeah, it, it it would take um, it would take uh, or a good day, fourteen yes. hours of flying nonstop with. 10 to 12 aircraft to land the commando and all their equipment. Okay. Um, and when you say equipment, what, what, what was there, did you have to take vehicles or, or guns? Everything, or? everything, their domestics, their hotel services, their weapons, the ammunition, fuel, right. the whole lot. It's a greenfield site. And that's not all, usually not all one, uh, not all one uh, termin uh, terminal. It's yeah. uh, you know scattered across um, what could be called a front, I suppose. Yeah. Um, area of operations and um, and it's the important thing is the the order this this the the order of um, disembarkation and embarkation for that matter has to reflect where it is stowed on the ship and the operational need ashore. Um, so, so the whole the whole smear, everything you need to operate was disembarked by helicopter, okay. oh, and occasionally you had boats, but usually, usually it was done by the the aircraft. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's um, it's fascinating stuff. I, I haven't really looked into commando operations before, so it's 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 an, uh, an insight that uh, I haven't had. So, with the um, with the squadron, I guess. You say there's there were different commando units. You, you must have been going back to Britain fairly regularly to swap over the, the commandos, and you know you're sort of going all around the world all the time during this tour. Were you? Yeah, not so much around the world. We went a couple of in in the two years I was involved with it. We went down to the the, the Mediterranean. Um, I, I seem to remember three or four times, but but Cyprus made made things. Uh, Little more, little more complex than yeah. they otherwise would have been, and we went across to the states. I think twice. Okay. We would have called into um, uh, Europe, uh, one, one of the German ports. I think a couple of times, and and we went to to Norway once a year yeah, for for what what were called clockwork exercises. Um, you know, in the cold. In the cold part of the year right right so uh, i guess um this being your first tour you would have been a, a second pilot on board you didn't uh, was, have it was was second pilot until you knew the ropes uh, and then most most of the um most of the flying was single pilot oh, so right. you 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 were, um, although you were very much a bog rat, as as happens in in every squadron. Yeah. You certainly were in the right hand seat as the single pilot. 
Okay. After after you'd uh, sort of satisfied the squadron um, that you're able to do the job. Okay. And, and within the uh, crew on the Wessex, I guess there must have been a crewman down the back, or yep, one crewman uh, generally, and uh, or, or observer, yep. but a crewman generally, and um, just one up front. Okay. Um, were you the only Kiwi on the squadron at the time, or were, yes. was yes, yeah. yes, I was. Okay. Yeah, interesting. And, and you said that this was for um, two years, and. After that, you came back to New Zealand, I guess. Yeah, I had uh, a bit of an unusual sort of um, evolution. I came back to do the the WASP conversion, the basic aircraft flying. That's just the nuts and bolts of operating the aircraft yeah. in New Zealand. I, I finished the, um, the loan tour with the Royal Navy and then came back to New Zealand and did the conversion onto the WASP at um, Hobsonville. Yeah. And then after I'd finished that, that took, uh, I recall, two months or maybe three months, and then then went back to UK to do the operational part of the conversion, what used to be called AFT and OFT. Okay. So there was the aircraft flying training and the operational flying training. So I went back to Portland um, to do the operational flying training, having done the, 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 the basic aircraft flying training at Hobsonville. Okay. Most people, most people, as far as I know, did the obviously easier, you know, progression to do the AFT and then the OFT, but uh, in the one place. But yes. I didn't. I, I guess it was a, a matter of expense, really. They were quite expensive courses. Right. Right. So, um, was there much of a difference in flying the Wasp from the Wessex? Uh, the the Wessex, Wessex with two engines was um, was different. Uh, obviously, managing two two uh, two motors, but yeah. um, I've I've never really seen too much difference in any of the aircraft I've operated. Once once you've um, sort of become used to it, you know, after the first 20, 30 hours, and yeah. I didn't see much difference between the the Wessex Five or the Wasp, or for that matter. I guess there's uh, probably more difference between, say, a Huey and a Wasp and a Wessex because of the different um, different dynamics. But um, I didn't feel that there was a huge difference between the the Wessex Five and the, the Wasp. Even even in the power department, the the Wasp is sort of known for having small power margins but that sort of matters only in the lowest speed envelope yeah part of the envelope and and once you're sort of up to cruise and and um and at 400 feet it doesn't really matter okay the, so, the, so, both, both, both the way i should say both the wessex and the wasp were delightful airplanes to fly oh great i thought so um, tell me about the the wasp. You you had a was again was it a single pilot once you were up to the captain standard. Yeah, it was important that you graduated out of the operational flying training as an operational aircraft captain because you're a, a um, some, some wasp flights in the RN operated with the second pilot, but that was very unusual. There was there were a few of those. And in just to give you an idea how how generally 
the aircraft was. And in 1968, I believe there were 15 frigate flights. So 15 flight commanders um, deployed on different ships in different parts of the world. But quite, a, quite an achievement then going back to what you were saying about helicopters being a relatively new mechanism at that time, which they yeah. were, particularly embarked aircraft yeah. because the RN were pioneers in the small ship aviation. Um, wasp sort of approach and um they were generally one pilot operations although occasionally they had a second pilot who was doing his first tour with a wasp flight rather than on on say a, a wessex oh yes yeah okay uh and you you had a crewman on board uh the wasp as well yep and he was usually a member of the RNZAF uh, maintainers crews. Um, uh, he did a, a crewman's course and that worked perfectly, although because he had two jobs, sometimes it interfered with his maintenance work. Yeah. You know, uh, if he was tired out from um, doing a, you know, several hours of load lifting where he was um, actually doing physical labor in the back of the aircraft. Uh, but generally it worked out very well indeed. Okay. Yeah, tell me about the the whole dynamic between the RNZF and the Navy working together on these um, small wasp flights. Well, it was well proven when I um, when I became a flight commander, uh, and I think my first ship was Canterbury after it came out. I, I think I haven't checked my logbook, um, and three squadron then was the parent squadron that looked after the the WASPs and the Bell 47s and the Huey. Yeah. Um, and I believe it was it, it was absolutely routine. There was there was no um, demarcation. The the uh, WASP uh, crews had uh, a little office alongside the various officers that the Air Force had, yeah. and that was necessary to do the administration. Uh, when the ship was alongside, you were still part of the ship, and so you existed out at uh, the squadron to do the out at Hobsonville, where the aircraft was, and then you needed to go back to the ship to do the the work on the ship. But the the flight um, when we disembarked was very much part of three squadron, uh, and they operated as an individual flight within the squadron organisation. Yeah, I, I don't think there was any demarcation. Uh, I can remember, and they were. So I go back to the teamwork. It was very much um, necessary to integrate the all members of the ship's company um, into into the one team, and that's what we focused upon with with the Air Force. They just became, um, you know, half a dozen other members of the ship's company, um, right. and they certainly were not. I guess uh, there was that sort of. Um, uh, sort of humorous, uh, humorous um, banter, sort of like Australians have with New Zealanders and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, but but that was humorous in what you do when you live together. But but functionally, they the, the just got on with it. It's an interesting thing uh, when you look back in the history of um, aircraft on board ships within the Royal New Zealand Navy. 
uh, I, I know that um, back in during the war when we had the the cruisers Achilles and Leander, the the gr ground crew as you would call them, uh, were also RNZF for the um, the Walrus. Uh, it's sort of it, pretty much the same thing. They became ship crew, um, but they were RNZF rather than Navy. But the the actual Royal Navy didn't and doesn't do that, do they? They have their own uh, Navy crews, don't they? That's that's correct. It, it is interesting. The you, you raised an interesting topic there. The uh, the Seagull Five or the Walrus um, amphibians that were also embarked across here in the in the cruisers and for that matter um, Royal Navy cruisers. And it's really interesting to go back through the history and and um, try and discern the relationships between the the flight, the, you know, the Walrus aircrew and Walrus maintainers yeah. and how they got on with the command at the time. And it's actually interesting. And I think, you know, a personal view, and it is only a personal view, you do see differences. You can actually get clues that, hello, that flight was not... Uh, not comfortable with their CO um, right. because he would have done that in a, this particular situation, or he would have done this, or he'd have, he would have uh, um, used his aircraft in this particular way. Yes. So it, it was, it, they were embarked in the, as you probably know better than I, they were embarked in the cruisers for a very short time once radar came in and, and uh, it was appreciated that, um, the vulnerabilities that the aircraft full of petrol that high and the superstructure above the torpedo tubes, um, you, you know, some, some many ships preferred to get rid of the, uh, the aircraft if they could. Um, and, and the last year of the war, uh, I, I don't think they were very much uh, embarked in cruisers, were they? Um, they, they certainly weren't in the RAN, but. It's... No, I think you're right there. Uh, in fact, I think all of the walrus that had been with the Navy, um, transferred to the to the air force and they were using them for yeah. for training yeah. the catalina crews so yeah it's a fascinating period of uh, aviation and you're right to bring it up and um you know i mentioned the other day in the email that uh, it was sort of surprising how the world war ii fleet air arm people when they went back to new zealand and and uh, joined the um or, or you know established their um their societies associations that they didn't seem that much interested in, in carrying the line on with the current generation of um, of aviators, you know, yeah, even though yeah. they're, they're, they're rotary. And and you mentioned that you'd attended a one or two functions, and uh, and there were some of the current generation there, which was good to hear. But it's a fascinating thing, and I don't think the basic principles of operating ships off uh, operating aircraft off small ships, be they Seagull fives or walrus or wasps or whatever has changed. I, th I think essentially they're the same, and and uh, it might be my own view, but um, I'll put it out there that that here we are just starting in another cycle with the uncrewed variety. You know yeah. where we take the the small uncrewed aircraft sometimes or usually um, controlled by someone who probably does not have the breadth of experience that say a flight commander had yeah. and 
uh, he he or she embarks with with the un, uncrewed aircraft and a couple of maintainers, I guess, in his small ship, and then he and the ship is required to operate that machine to best operational advantage. And I think that's taking us right back to the the time. Well, we'll take it all the way back to the first shop with Pup. I've, I've actually I'll send it to you if you're interested in the first first embarked um, orders for yep. um, for an embarked shop with Pup or Camel, you know, in yep. in, uh, in World War One. I'll send those to you. And um, I got them off the um, the um, Australian War Memorial the other day. They just happened oh, really? to have a, a copy, and it's the, the original the original notes. And you you reflect that the principles actually haven't changed at all. Whether you're talking about a, a shop with Pup or a uh, your latest brand of um, a Sikorsky Romeo helicopter or EH101, depending depending which navy you're in. Right, right, right. Yeah, okay. That's a, it's really interesting. Actually, I hadn't even thought about how far back it went, but yeah, that's amazing. So, yeah, um, was, oh, sorry. No, no, you please go, Dave. I interrupt, interrupted you. Yeah, uh, I was, I was going to say, um, you're saying when you finished your training, uh, converting to the to the WASP, uh, you went back to England and, and did another tour there on the WASP. Uh, did you find, you know, I guess once you got back here, did you find there was a difference between the way the, the Brits operated the WASP and the Kiwis operated the WASP? No, I, I misled you there. It wasn't a tour. It was just a three-month operational conversion onto the WASP right. after, the, after yep. the basic conversion at Hobsonville onto the onto the pure flying of the aircraft. So it wasn't a tour. It was just the conversion at Portland. Okay, so uh, it, it was pretty much a, a, a training course rather than anything else. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. right. Um, but to, to go to your question, no, the the uh, in those days, in those early days, um, the New Zealand flights were very much run along the lines of the British flights. Yes. Uh, at the Royal Navy flights and the. Um, there was always a, um, a Royal Navy exchange pilot or loan pilot uh, serving with the Royal New Zealand Navy at that time to maintain those standards. Oh right. And and it and it, and it was a, a a tightly regulated little operation. Um, uh, you, you know the the facilities. I mean, by facilities, I mean the the flight deck uh, and hangar equipments, uh, fueling gear, lashing gear, um, the friction of the flight deck, um, the lighting, the glide path indicator, the safety nets, you, you know, there's, there's hundreds of little items that will be checked and routinely checked for, for operation. And um, a feature of our our lives were, were bogey times. Every time everything had a bogey time, whether it was to to fold the aircraft, stow the aircraft, range the aircraft, and and spread it, put uh, 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 put fuel in it, and then start it and get it airborne. Every everything had a time, yeah. uh, which which the 
aircraft and the ship for that matter, let me say the ship's aircraft, ship's flight had to achieve. And, and a lot of it was that cooperation with the bridge to achieve it. You know, you had to have the, the wind, the appropriate wind uh, and the appropriate flying preparation completed before you ever got to the aircraft and then and involve the aircraft with with ranging it and uh, and spreading it often often in sea conditions that would have the ship rolling you know 15 perhaps in worst case uh, 20 degrees uh, yeah. which is a long way uh, but it, it became a, a matter of practice and a matter of routine and uh, so going back to the um, the RN exchange guy and maintaining standards, it was a regular feature that he would come to see and just see that uh, you, you were meeting all your bogey times and, and doing it safely. Okay. And there were usually uh, deficiencies that were picked up and corrected. And, and there were certainly targets for, for flying hours. Um, flying hours were, were normally about 25, 25 hours a month. And um, say six to eight hours of that would be at night time. So it was, was quite well regulated and the standards of the frontline squadron, which was 829 squadron in, in uh, Royal Navy, were, were brought and implemented with the RNZN. I, I don't know, I can't speak for how things are done now, but perhaps the standardization, well, the standardization has clearly changed because we've got a different breed of aeroplane, but um, yeah. <clears throat> that's how it was done in the 60s anyway. Okay. And, and 70s. So you mentioned the uh, night flying. What was it like to fly on and off the uh, ship at night? Um, it it was um, it it was um, challenging uh, to start with, uh, and again, it was a state of mind. Um, the the aircraft was fitted. I think it's only navigational means of of finding the ship in the dark was. Um, uh, what we called a violet picture, I think, which was just the um, UHF homing, left-right indication. Yep. And uh, that was pretty reliable. It used to work okay. But um, we, we tried to minimise communications as much as possible because communications could be heard by other people. And we didn't like using lights also. Yep. So oftentimes the ship would be would be darkened. So um, there were two, two different phases, I guess, to night flying. And uh, the horizon made a fantastic bit of difference. If you had a visual horizon, that made things immeasurably easier. Yeah. But yeah. once the horizon was gone, it was full IMC and you're on instruments and you relied on the uh, anti-submarine aircraft controller or the helicopter control officer, ESAC or HCO. So you, you were in the uh, ops room's hands. Yes. You were flying in a, in a velvet bag on instruments and um, that took uh, uh, um, a certain amount of adjustment when, when, you, when you first started, but it, it became routine. And uh, one of the first things that you tried to do when you went back to sea after a time alongside was to was to get the sea legs back so that you could fly around the moving deck and um, also fly on instruments without a visual horizon. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> it, it just, for, for me, that just boggles the mind thinking about a moving deck in the dark 
uh, yeah, that's kind of scary to me. No, no I, I wouldn't. I, w I wouldn't want you to be. Uh, I, I wouldn't want you to be thinking too much into it. it it's a matter of routine and a, yeah. a, a matter of a matter of practice. And and if you allowed yourself to become concerned by it, I think you're on a bit of a slippery slope. So it was yeah. just a matter a matter of becoming uh, practiced at it and um, trusting in the flight deck officer to bring you back onto the deck uh, when, when the motion was right, because without a horizon, you you didn't know where the ship was either. Yes. Um, yeah. um, so, so you relied very much on the flight deck officer to pick the moment when the, the ship was upright and also in that couple of seconds of what used to be called the quiescent period where the ship motion was was still so you yeah. get the aeroplane down and push the collective down into to negative thrust and uh, get the lashing tied on. Okay. Is there any aid or was there any aid on the um, WASP for uh, the deck landing? I know some of the modern helicopters, they have a sort of almost like a little harpoon that they fire into the deck. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. Uh, and... Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, I'll start with the lighting aids, um, first of all, and cover those briefly. The GPI, Glide Path Indicator, brought you down a, uh, a uh, designated angle. Um, uh, try and remember what it was. I think it was seven degrees. It could be a little bit less than that. It was just a conventional red, green, amber. So you flew down in the green, Amber was high, red was low, and uh, that was just a matter of flying down it like any other instrument indication. But you had to split your attention from the from the instruments inside the aircraft, look up, and uh, get the GPI. And that GPI would be acquired at um, at a quarter of a mile, and you'd be flying down at uh, sort of sixty knots. Or, or if it was a low visibility approach when the ship was in fog and you couldn't see the ship, you'd be flying at forty feet and forty knots until you acquired the ship at somewhat less than quarter of a mile <clears throat> I recall um, yeah. but um, one of the things we didn't have was a moving horizon and uh, that came along after uh, I, I'm not sure whether New Zealand ships have it um, it it's a moving horizon bar which is gyro stabilized and sort of maintains um, alignment with the horizon that was enormously useful yeah. um, we didn't have that but that's a common feature nowadays and Coming back to the ship, the ship restraints, when you look at an embarked aeroplane, what's not often mentioned is that part that you raised. And it's interesting that you do raise it um, because it's an essential part of, um, of, a, of an embarked aircraft. That is, how does it stick to the deck once, it, yeah. once it's got, got back or before it gets off? And um, <laughs> the WASP... <clears throat> had um did not have the harpoon was never fitted with a harpoon it had a deck swivel which had um which had another use uh, it, it enabled the aircraft to swivel into wind and then you just um push the button on the collective uh your left hand control and uh, the swivel dropped away but that was to restrain the aircraft before you launched not after you launched so okay. that you could swivel into wind uh, we never, we've seldom used that apart from um, um, just maintaining practice in it. Uh, you could, you could, you could rotate the aircraft into wind just in a in a low hover 
more than effectively if you're required to do that. And uh, but the thing that the wasp had was uh, negative thrust, so that uh, when you landed on, you pushed down against a spring, a spring force, I guess, on the collective, and that provided something like a thousand pounds of downward thrust, which which enabled the aircraft to stick to the deck um, uh, until the um, the um, lashing numbers, that's the people that um, provided uh, the, the securing, which were nylon tape lashings uh, to the aircraft. And um, you worked very hard to reduce that lashing, lashing <coughs> time down to the absolute minimum. So you didn't want to be at the mercy of ship motion. But um, your Tamana and Takahas currently have the, uh, the Harpoon grid fitted for operation with the Sea Sprite oh, aircraft. Right. I, I'd be most interested to get the envelope, that is the, you know, the ship motion envelope and the wind, uh, wind envelope that uh, enables, enables the harpoon to be used, but I've not found it yet. Uh, okay. uh, it's not generally uh, uh, a dramatically secret sort of um, piece of information, but in our Anzacs, that's the Australian Anzacs, do not have the harpoon and grid fitted. And uh, the... It's interesting because you'd be aware that those sea sprites operated by the New Zealand Navy were acquired by the Australian Navy and then sold to the New Zealand Navy. Yes. Because they couldn't satisfy the airworthiness requirements um, of the Australian Defence Force. So we sold them to the New Zealand. And, and, and I'm not sure of, of the whys and wherefores of the airworthy airworthiness regimen at all. I'm just not familiar with what, what the particular detail was in that, but you ended up with a sea spike and um, the Australian procurement machine asked that Mr. Kaman, who made the, um, the sea sprite to, to fit, fit the, um, the rest. We, we have uh, rest on um, our Anzac frigates. Rest is uh, retrieve, assist, secure and traverse. The helicopter lowers a cable uh, in in a, a, a sort of a 12 foot, 15 foot hover onto the ship, and the helicopter is is winched onto the deck, and the the winching remains under tension and provides um, several thousand pounds of force to hold the aircraft on the deck, and that applies okay. to Seahawk operations. With the New Zealand Anzacs. As you, as you pointed out, when New Zealand got the sea sprites, they fitted, um, or you fitted the, the harpoon, as it's called in, in NATO terms, harpoon to the, the belly of the uh, sea sprite. Yep. And yep. you mounted a grid in the middle of the flight deck. And I presume, I presume you, um, you use it the same as NATO navies use the, the harpoon and grid. That is, you land on the probe extends and, and grasps the, the grid and then tensions and, and exerts a hydraulic force. But there is a, a, a sort of a two second pause there um, as the, the probe extends. So I guess my point is I'm trying to emphasize it. it it's, it's, a, it's a number of factors. You know, how, how is the aircraft equipped to operate to a moving deck, and there's the negative thrust, the the the, the links, the western links, 
the WASP, which I've already mentioned, the Lynx, the Tiger Cat, and the EH-101 have negative thrust. The, the EH-101 uh, can uh, exert um, sort of something like 6,000 pounds downward thrust uh, to hold it on the deck um, as its harpoon engages. The Tiger Cat, which is the, the uh, development of the Lynx, I think has got a downward thrust of 3,000 3, pounds as the, as the probe extends and hooks on. But the Sea Sprite, as far as I know, does not have negative, negative I've not flown the aircraft apart from a couple of familiar trips, but I don't think it has negative thrust. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. When you, when you come to consider aircraft, uh, including the Seahawk. Sea the Seahawk does not have downward thrust. It has, in fact, residual thrust, like most helicopters, you know, even with the collective at flat pitch. Yeah. Um, it, it, is, it is providing an upward thrust, which tends to be a destabilizing factor when you're sitting on a moving deck. So you don't want to be sitting unsecured on a deck. So you love that uh, rasp to, to, to be holding you, holding you down. Now, with our current destroyers, um, the um, air warfare destroyers, which we've just built two of, we've moved away with rest, moved away from rest, and we now have a thing called assist, which is aircraft ships um, integrated securing and traverse assist, mm -hmm. uh, and and that does not have the haul down feature. It 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 grabs hold of the what is still the RAS probe on the on the Seahawk and holds the aircraft. And once again, there is a several second pause as as that uh, piece of deck machinery maneuvers up to the aircraft and grabs its probe to hold it down. Right. Um, but um, there's no negative thrust and uh, the British uh, British aircraft, that's the the WASP the Lynx, the Tiger Cat, and the EH-1 have uh, also specialised oleos so that they provide a constant ride height. So when the when the aircraft roll, when the ship rolls, the the aircraft uh, maintains um, where it is in terms of roll with the ship relative to the ship. If you understand what I'm saying, yeah. with with yeah. with the normal oleos like big floppy energy absorbing oleos, um, the ship acceleration causes the aircraft to have a residual roll. So say the ship rolls to 15 degrees, the aircraft will tend to want to roll further because of the acceleration of the aircraft as the ship rolls, it will roll to say 17, sometimes 20 degrees. And that becomes a concern when you approach the, the rollover angle of the aircraft, the static rollover, you know, the CFG gets outside the, the main wheels and you can actually roll the aircraft on its side and over the side. Um, so when you look at the ship's um, ship aircraft mix, you should think about <laughs> the, the capability built into the aircraft and some really, really interesting, uh, really interesting uh, images on, on, on the web. Um, the Canadians actually are the pioneers of rough weather helicopter operations. They, they invented the thing called the bear trap which is the uh, the prototype uh, or, or the initial the initial technology that was built into the rest, uh, which the Americans took over with the the lamps. Um, you know the first SH sixty B, which was the 
numerical designation of the first Seahawk. Right. Um, right. And, and that was built into the USS McInerney, um, the rest, but it was actually a, a modification and pretty similar piece of machinery to what the Canadians called the bear trap. The Canadians operate the, um, the, um, the Sikorsky CH-148 uh, cyclone at sea, which is bigger, slightly bigger than the Seahawk. It's a big aircraft. If you, uh, if you Google assist A-S-I-S-T, you'll see that there's some dramatic pictures of the ship rolling about 25 or 30 degrees um, with, with, the, with the, the CH-48 secured to the deck. And you'll see what I mean by residual roll. The aircraft has rolled further than the ship and the ship has rolled about 25 degrees. Yeah. I was looking at that last night. They, they, it comes up when you Google assist. What they, what they should be telling you and they don't is that ac that actually is not assist. It's a thing called C-REST. C hyphen rest the the Canadians to embark the CH 148 um, developed rest further to make it even more capable than it was before, okay. and they certainly have, have put the aircraft and the C rest through a ringer to to verify that it works at sea. You have a look at some of those pictures; they're they're very dramatic. It's yeah. quite it's quite uh, indicative that you generally generally see the unmanned aircraft on a flight deck in the imagery on on uh, on Google and have a look at the horizon. It's generally always dead horizontal. Right. But when the uh, Blue Water navies like Canada operate their aircraft, that's when you see the the horizon at uh, 25 degrees, 30 degrees different to the ship's uh, horizon. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And, and and I think we, we are gradually gradually moving away from rough weather operations. I don't know. I, I I'm not really. That's that's the feeling I have with yeah. with the WASP and certainly the Lynx. There was a requirement to operate in in the normal operating environment of the ship, and um, so moderate certainly moderate uh, ship motion was required. You you generally didn't get too much value out of out of flat calm right, right uh, plus plus the added be benefit of operating in moderate sea conditions was there was generally a wind which was which which was always welcome yes yeah 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 uh, so um what happens in between after you've uh after you've, you've landed on the the deck you secure and then you've got to get the helicopter from the deck into the hangar does that get unconnected then or is does the actual connection move along the deck with yeah just so that it doesn't roll over the side at some stage if, if really the... another important question uh, that you're asking excellent questions i'm probably not providing excellent answers Dave. Oh, but, no, uh, <laughs> the actual the wash wasn't so much of a problem because you put a, a person on each corner of the aircraft and a couple down the tail um bumper and, and you could move the aircraft but even so you you did what was called a dynamic move and you had the aircraft connected to the deck um, by at least four lashings and they were tape mashing lashings um, which enabled you, you could pay out and pull in quite easily but they would restrain the aircraft if if the ship moved yeah. so yeah. <coughs> at every point from the spot the operating spot 
during the fold operation, you fold the aircraft, and then you'd put it away in the hangar. It was under positive control, but that was for a at, at its heaviest, you know, a, a couple of ton aircraft, five, yeah. five and a half thousand pounds. But um, when you come to um, a Sea Sprite or a Sea Hawk, the, the, the aircraft is just physically too big. Um, you know, it's, it's um, uh, you know, beyond what the, the uh, human can control. So it's right. important to have a mechanical assistant by a system of winches and rails in the deck to manage the aircraft from its operating spot into the hangar. And um, the aircraft is at its most tender and vulnerable when it's moving from the spot into the hangar or from the hangar out to its spot. Right. And you wish to do that as quickly as possible so that you don't constrain the, um, the bridge's freedom of, of manoeuvre. And, uh, and it's a really important part. It's the most critical part because often the, the clearance as the aircraft goes through the hangar door is not more than, at, at worst case, six inches. Yeah. And it just needs one brush to do terrible damage to the aircraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing I was thinking. I mean, one tiny little roll, you could end up just riding the aircraft off just by whacking Absolutely. it to the side of the door. So. Absolutely. And and uh, it's it's the flight's worst nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Ah, so um, was there much need for maintenance at sea in terms of, um, you know, if you had some sort of engine issue or, uh, you know, if you're, if you're out at sea for months at end was there was the wasp pretty reliable or, or could, could it have problems where you might not be flying for days well the um the the regimen of maintenance was flexible servicing with the uh, the wasp so that you actually when you were ashore you tried to to clear the the heavy items and component changes the being an early aircraft it's um meantime between overhauls and replacement were, were very low you know yeah with the engine you're talking uh, sort of 100 100 hours so. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, crazy figures now and uh, a lot of the dynamics were of that order um but i i don't want to make too big a thing of it it's just what you had to work with and yes. um the, the flexible servicing enabled you to bring forward or, or delay to, to within certain margins your your maintenance and the flight senior maintenance sailor the flight sergeant um, would talk to the talk to the the, the sergeants who each responsible for his trade and clear those items that took uh, that took time so that you had the maximum uh, maximum flying hours available at sea. There was always maintenance to do, but um, that was day-to-day -day maintenance that yeah. was um, flying out dependent, um, you know, from the flying hours that you just flown. Right. Um, and a lot of that was anti-corrosion work um, <clears throat> because the aircraft being built of magnesium and aluminium was very prone to corrosion. So uh, a good part of the work day-to-day -day was anti-corrosion uh, work and, um, the heavy maintenance item component changes, we, we tried to do that ashore. Certainly engine changes were, were done ashore, gearbox changes um, yep. ashore, but they could be done at sea and you certainly had the gear to do it. Okay. But uh, you didn't always have a spare engine. You generally carried a spare engine. And um, the engine, of course, was your most important, um, most important 
um, item of concern. And uh, you were very aware of your your engine and how many hours it had flown and how it was performing, what it sounded like, particularly at night. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what temperatures and pressures it was providing and um, you, you monitored it like a, like a baby. Right, right. And in terms of hours, um, what would the, the average flight hours be for, um, you know, just, just an average flight? And what was your longest flight that you would have done in a WASP? The, the average average flight was um, was uh, same as ashore. It, it tended tended to be an hour. Yeah. And uh, see, an important part of that was um, pressure refueling, uh, and it wasn't um, a fuel type connection. It was rather like a a nozzle you use when you go to the average service station with your car. Okay. But the fueling point was not too far from the intake of the engine, and um, you could guarantee that you'd have a spectacular outcome if you allowed the engine to ingest AVCAT um, through its front end. Yes. Um, so you you wanted to you wanted to to exercise hot refueling uh, quite frequently. So you'd fly an hour, but you might fuel um, in that time three or four times, just just a couple of hundred pounds to okay. to make sure that uh, the the hose and the pumps and the um, fuel fuel control quality control was an important part of the flight. You know for for uh, fungus control, Cladosporium resini, you didn't want that contaminating things because that grows like wildfire at sea, and right. and water and the fuel was also was important. Um, the the fl flying at night was um, was was similar, about about an hour. And you were allocated sort of you you wanted to fly about twenty five hours a month. Something like that to maintain maintain currency. Okay. Uh, the, the, the longest I flew, flew was um, one time we went to Rail Island, and it, 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 it's one of one of my highlight trips. Uh, you probably laugh at this, but on Rail Island they they had a goat problem, and and also I th I think it was some plant pest as well. It could have been blackberry. So. The wasp um, actually took up uh, a pellet, a pellet, a pellet distributing gizmo, um, which distributed the the planticide, whatever it was, to kill off the um, to kill off the plant pests on one trip. That, that was pretty routine. Uh, but the trip that that I'll remember was when. A couple of hunters were taken up, and and they had dogs, and uh, and and I'd never flown with animals before in the aircraft, so we we thought about this a bit and said, oh well, as long as you maintain that the uh, that the collar was nice and tight, and and uh, we had a couple of um, lashing points in the in the back of the aircraft, we'll, we'll give it a go. But the dogs actually loved it, um, <laughs> and and. It was like, um, um, and they, they, as I remember, those were stock standard kilpies that the shooters used for the ghosts, and and um, they weren't big hunting dogs. Yeah. But they really enjoyed it. They hung their heads outside the, the door because we didn't fly with doors on, and, and with their great big tongues lolling about. <laughs> and, and they just said, uh, you know, they, they said to the crew, well, it's very good of you to do this for us. And, and uh, through the... 
the 20 minute flight, it, it was clear that they were absolutely delighted by the, uh, by the trip in the helicopter. And uh, I, I've always felt good about giving, giving those, you know, three or four dogs, uh, you know, the ride of their lives. And from, yeah. from, but that trip we flew, uh, I think, I think we flew for 10 hours straight on the, in the aircraft. So that was, oh, wow. so that was the longest trip I'd ever done. I think, uh, I didn't do anything longer in our Wessex Five or anything like that. Wow, ten hours! Wow. But but we had a lot of resupply to do, and there wasn't really a good um, a jetty you could go to at uh, Rail Honor. Yeah, that's uh, the Kermadex, you know, uh, just up to the north of New Zealand. Yes. Yeah. So um, we haven't actually talked about the various roles of the the wasp. Um, in the 1970s, the Cold War was still very much a thing. Um, and I know that, you know, they carried torpedoes uh, in case of, I don't know, Soviet submarines or, or ships. Um, but can you, can you talk me through the different roles that you guys had to prepare for and, and, yeah. and used? Yeah, that was its main role um, in, um, in New Zealand as well, um, just to cart the torpedoes, and it could take two Mark 44s. The Mark 46 was a little bit heavier, so it could take one of those. Um, but during my time, we had the Mark 44. And um, with the Leander class, um, it no longer had the Mortar Mark 10, which the earlier frigates of the same size to the Leander had that had a range, I recall, of a thousand. A thousand yards, the helicopter could uh, could take it much much further, um, you know, as as far as the ship really wanted to. Um, generally, maybe ten miles, which is a range of you know, sonar on a good day, yeah. a really good day. Yeah. Uh, that was the main role. Um, uh, it, that that was that had the acronym in the way that military has of match. That was the name of its capability match. Medium aircraft torpedo carrying helicopter match. Okay. Yeah, I think that's that was a primary role, but mainly otherwise it was um, surface surveillance, uh, and and routine utility. It's amazing when you've got a helicopter what you can use it for. Yes. Um, and um, the eyes and ears of the ship. Uh, Become uh, become the major major role. So the the in a in a combined exercise, the the aircraft would routinely be flown out, say up to a hundred miles in front of the ship, or wherever you wanted, uh, wherever you expected the threat, or or people that you or ships that you're rendezvousing to come from, and the wasp would go out and. Um, and and look look for it and um, used to do that quite frequently. It's interesting during my time we we didn't really improve the aircraft by add-ons and um, if I can hark hark back to uh, the unmanned variety, it's interesting now that naval aircraft have tended to become heavier and heavier. You know the yeah. The uh, EH-101 is, and the CH-148, the Canadian aircraft I referred to, is in the region of 30,000 pounds. The, the Sea Hawk, I think, is in the region of sort of 24,000 pounds. The WASP was 5,000, 
500 pounds. The Squirrel that we operated for the same period of time here in the RAN, uh, the AS350B, which is a, another marvellous aircraft, much underrated, yeah. uh, um, is, is a little bit lighter than that. But um, the sensors have, have also become a lot lighter. So with unmanned systems, un, unpersoned system, unproved, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be woke and correct here. Un, unmanned, <laughs> unpersoned, uncrewed uh, systems have now routinely got got FLIR, um, uh, sorry, forward-looking infrared, uh, yep. uh, some form of vision enhancement, usually in the same uh, same system, um, ability to relay communications, and uh, a sensor for. ESM work, i.e., detecting electronic uh, emissions, e emanation from from other uh, other platforms and aircraft. But it's never been th that that technology has never, as far as I know, amongst the the first order blue water navies, has never been integrated until you've got the unperson thing like the um, the um, Fire Scout now coming along with the U USN, you know, the MQ8B and MQ8C, the the B was the turbine version of the Schweitzer or Hughes 300. Yeah. And the, the C is the uh, Bell 407. Um, you know, it's always been a, a wonder to me, why, why is this fixation with making that unpersoned? Um, you, you know, the, the, um, the crew immediately gives you so many more options. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've never understood that. And when you start looking at um, procurement costs of, say, an MQHC, that is the 407, Bell 407 robot, um, yep. you look at its unit cost, and I checked it last night, the unit cost with, um, with development costs and production costs is 47 million. That's a DOD figure, um, right. 47 million. A, a Seahawk costs around about 57, 60 million. Right. Um, now, now there'd be margins there, but that's a very approximate costing. Whereas a, a squirrel-sized aircraft and there's bells of, of similar size, um, um, you know, costs, say, on a good day, a really flash new uh, aircraft is, say, $3 million. Uh, right. And the system, okay, when you start putting FLIR and, um, and sensors in there like a radar, uh, just say say double it, so so you're up to say say ten million, and and uh, you you have a crew in there of of um, of similar capability that you put in your wasp of all those years ago. Yeah, uh, it's been an interesting uh, interesting developed for me, and and I'm very much on the sideline now. But I, I've never seen a good discussion about that, and there certainly are not attrition figures so that you can actually put some granularity into the question, well, with these robots, just how reliable are they? Uh, and how many are you going to routinely write off when you operate in rough weather? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, and I'm not saying they'll be higher or lower because I just don't know, but it's an interesting question, isn't it? We operated the, the or you operated the WASP for 32 years with yep. Squirrel also 32 years, but um, whereas civilian operators have routinely Put radars in their in their their squirrels, their AS three fifty B or AS three fifty five or the EC 120, 145s, whatever whatever the squirrels called nowadays. To routinely put a 
put a radar in there and, and the police forces routinely put a FLIR in there now or MVG compatible instruments. Uh, but you don't find navies doing that. And it's sort of curious. And, and we built a gun that we a machine gun when we went to the Gulf. We we put together a a tripod gun mount which just mounted a Mag 58 on it, and that extended the capability and use of the Squirrel, which we routinely embarked on the FFGs, the Oliver Hazard Perry class, uh, to provide top cover for the larger aircraft to do embarkations on on foreign vessels, and um, you know that machine gun. Uh, greatly, immensely, uh, and it was locally built um, in extremis, you know, over a couple of days. Yeah. It worked well. <clears throat> and uh, we never sort of developed the, as far as I know, the wasp, and we certainly didn't develop substantially the squirrel. And, and there's an enormous capability that we've just sort of jumped up into the, the Seahawk class, which of course is needed for the the sonar boy, uh, the sonar role, you know, the yeah. sonar body. Yeah. Uh, and it certainly needs the uh, payload capacity for boys and um, and um, and weapon carriage and for long, long times on task. But it seems to me to be a capability that, uh, that we, we've allowed to not be developed. I mean, we've got the WASP and, and there, it's, there it operated pretty much undeveloped for 32 years. And the squirrel, which we did a little bit of development in, we certainly used it for remote targeting, yeah. uh, but that was primarily uh, visual. Uh, we, we used, we, we put a GPS in it. Um, but apart from that, uh, oh, we had handheld ESM as well, but, um, but the development was not there, but along comes the artificial intelligence and the uncrewed platform and we're going hell for leather to uh, employ that on our ships. I don't know where New Zealand is with that, but we're certainly doing a lot of work with that here in Australia. Yeah, I mean, that new technology must uh, limit the roles too. I mean, a lot of the utility stuff that uh, the WASP and Sea Sprite does, uh, you won't be able to do that if there's nobody on board, as far as I can see. Um, no, no. Uh, again, you, you see, um, breathlessly announced, if I can use it to perhaps overly dramatically, uh, where there are the RN is developing UAVs that will be able to do vert tripping, um, i.e., helicopter, you, you know, vertical resupply. And yeah. it's going to have a payload of, wait for it, 300 pounds. Uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, a, a pallet of five-inch, you know, shells suddenly appears before me, and, and I wonder how many of those it can lift up. I think we've got a long way to go before we we understand what capability we're actually going to achieve. And I've never seen a full-blown operational evaluation of a of a uh, a UAV um, remote capability, uncrewed uh, capability. Uh, have you? Uh, um, I, mean, no. uh, I mean, by an operational evaluation, I mean uh, in the environment that you're planning to operate in, you know, rough weather, fair weather, with the crew that you're planning to operate with in operational conditions. I have not seen that with, um, no. there's a lot of, um, 
companies spruiking their wares and God bless them. And they're certainly very capable and they're doing marvellous things, but I've just not seen uh, a full-blown operational evaluation in our case of what we're talking about at sea. No, you're absolutely right. I haven't come across anything like that. Um, just uh, to change the subject a bit, uh, did you do much in the way of search and rescue work at sea? With the wasp. A, a lot of search and rescue work, yeah, a lot of search and rescue, and and uh, that was before that was before um, the commercial companies that uh, are now available to do yeah. that. Yep. So, um, <coughs> whether that be at sea, and it normally was at sea, searching for a lost um, uh, yachts person or um, the medevac, which was taking somebody that was sick off a merchantman or or a yacht and flying them ashore to hospital, that was a good part of the role, certainly. Yeah. But now that is done and, and usually very well done by commercial companies who are, who've got all the gear, you know. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the FLIR and the MVGs um, uh, and routinely have radar as well. I, I guess another uh, role that um, both uh, Air Force and Navy helicopters come into uh, fairly regularly it would be um disaster relief type stuff did you do much of that yeah it's, um yeah i can't think of a, a keynote one certainly we've got our floods floods um in the north uh, northern new south wales southern queensland at the moment and um, yeah. there's people on the roofs that have been sitting on their roofs um for two days according to the news and, and wow. i'm sort of wondering where where the MVG and Fleur equipped uh, aircraft are there. Um, yeah, yeah. I did not. Uh, I did not do too many of that sort of scale operations that I can recall. Um, but um, maybe maybe I've forgotten. But but that's certainly I've I've seen um, an MRH <coughs> um, ninety. Uh, on the news, uh, doing winching winching work off roofs, yeah, and and that's that's a hazardous operation. Not so much for the crew, but for the people you're rescuing. You know, they they can can quickly become dislodged and fall off the roof and into the into the floodwater. So yes, true. Um, and there's an interesting footage I, I saw this morning on on a couple of the websites. You might have an opportunity to see it on your news tonight of a crewy that had some trouble rescuing some people off the roof he he slipped on the corrugated iron roof and and uh fell into the water and and was in a, quite a bit of trouble oh wow okay uh, which which is not realized by the um the commentator but um it's um mrh with a side number of 027 if you happen to see it type and okay. 027 yep um uh certainly they do good work um i haven't seen any civil aircraft and um uh, involved with that and some some of those people as i said have been sitting out in the the open for two days on their roofs in uh, lismore i understand yeah that's not good uh, and I, I i know i know our um our firefighting our bush firefighting operation uh, is it coulson uh, helicopters um yep are now getting into night uh, bushfires uh fighting they would be uh, employable in that scenario, but um, it's going to be interesting to see what, what sort of tasking requests were put into to what authorities when this 
when this uh, the, this initial crisis phase is over, because I've only seen Taipan 027 of any aircraft up there. Certainly, okay. a lot of um, a lot of good work is being done by civilian boat owners who are operating in the dark. I, I heard rescuing people off roof. They've done a fantastic job. Wow. Um, but I've never, I can't say that I've been involved in, I can't recall, certainly been involved in flood relief, but but not that sort, you know, carrying hay bales around and uh, winching the odd people, but not in something that's really dramatic like that. Um, yeah. Dave? Okay. Um, oh, I had a question. What was it? <laughs> Oh yeah, no. Can you tell me um, how many people were in the Wasp flight on board the ship? Uh, you know, and what were their roles? Uh, there was one for one NCO, one sergeant for each of the trades. Um, so that would be air, aircraft technician, avionics, armor. Yeah, and armor, uh, um, and they were cross qualified in their other and electrician. And so they were cross-qualified, and the fifth man would be the flight senior maintenance um, NCO who was responsible for the maintenance. Right. So that's five. Yeah. Uh, so there was five plus me. That's six. Okay. And so you, you just, there's only just six of you. That's the, that's the lot. Six, six, and uh, generally six. Occasionally there'd be another one who was getting trained up. Uh, doing familiarization on board the ship, getting sea legs and so on. Yep. Uh, but once you got on board, you, you had at least four lashing numbers that uh, you'd qualify out of the ship's company. And that would be their action stations. So there'd be at least two watches of, of four lashing numbers. Um, you, you occasionally use the, uh, the flight members for that, or you'd usually use the flight members for that, but you'd back them up with, with ship's company to take over when they needed a rest so you could do 24-hour operations. Yep. Um, you'd have two fire suitmen, which were dressed in their fire suit uh, and with uh, the fire mains charged to the nozzle for fires. That used that that actually was my greatest fear of being drowned by those guys. You know, they waited in their, their fear not suits, you know, the asbestos suits for yep. all those flying hours, just waiting for things to show the the slightest sign of fire and they would have you, you would have had 60 psi of fire hose uh, suddenly be engulfed with foam and and huge quantities of bloody water that used to be that used to be my greatest fear of being yeah. drowned by those firefighters but, but, uh, and then there was the flight deck officer um, who as i said before he he uh, controlled you on and off the deck yeah. And there were a couple of people in the ops room controlling the, the aircraft once you get airborne vectoring the aircraft around or just keeping a SAR watch on the aircraft if you were freelance. And okay. um, the, the, the bloke on the bridge, the uh, officer of the watch and command would, would be oversighting it and uh, uh, they're watching through TV what was going on, on the flight deck and uh, their aim would be to keep the operation safe, of course, and uh, provide the optimum wind, you know, and the optimum wind would be sort of 30 degrees on either side of the bow with ship speed added on to that so that you had 15 or 20 knots over the deck, which was always most welcome. Yeah. 
uh, and to keep keep ship motion uh, reasonable. Uh, and by reasonable, all you wanted was three or four degrees of roll at the moment of takeoff or landing. And it didn't really matter how far it rolled after after lashings were on. Um, you're happy to accept what you got. And what occasionally happened, which was just a bit disappointing, was was you know the ship would take a, a gopher uh, broadside on, and and that would sometimes go through the aircraft and not do much good to the electronics. Um, but the ship motion itself didn't uh, didn't worry the aircraft too much once yeah. it was lashed down. Okay. Uh, did you do much in the way of um, transporting VIPs or you know interesting people to and from the ship? Yeah, yeah. It, routinely do that. Uh, I I can't think of. I could only think of my sheep dogs or uh, well, goat dogs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I can't think of. Uh, there must have been. Must have, uh, you know, I've flown the Prime Minister of Australia, but yeah, okay. Uh, I can't claim to have flown the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Uh, um, no, I, I, certainly VIP was, was routine because it, it makes a good start to a visit if you can fly them out. Uh, and uh, it was a bit of a rarity in those days, the helicopter. Yeah, yeah, we'll and, be, yeah. Uh, the ship CEO made him on meet meet the VIP on the flight deck, and uh, it might made a nice nice day out, you know, on a on a nice flat calm day on in the Hauraki Gulf. Uh, fly them out, and then fly them back again, and then but I can't remember anyone of note apart from the sheepdogs. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> so um, during your time with the Royal New Zealand Navy, do you remember any accidents or incidents with the um, with the wasps? Whether it was in your flight or or any of the others, yeah, I um, I didn't have any accidents that are, that I can recall. I, I I can honestly say, and I've got my hand on my heart here, that I never bent anything. Yeah, and if anybody tells you otherwise, Dave, <laughs> you let me know, would you please? Yeah, sure. <laughs> As far as I can recall, we, we never bent anything. John Greenwood, uh, rest in peace, uh, had that engine failure in the uh, in the harbour. Oh, right. That's the accident that I can remember. And that's sort of well known. Everybody seems to mention that. John Greenwood, uh, he, was, he was actually, what we used to do every week was to work with North Head. I don't know whether it's still a naval establishment, a radar establishment at Devonport, up the top of the hill there. Yeah, I think there is still naval presence there. Yeah, that's where they trained, uh, that's where the Navy trained um, ASACs and just routinely used to employ the helicopter from, from either from the ship or Hobsonville. So we'd trundle down there in the, uh, the WASP and we'd spend an hour or two uh, being controlled around by by the people on North Head. Yeah. Well, John yeah. went down there on this day, and I remember, and, and you never see this bit written up in the uh, the reports of the accident. Certainly, he, he had a a a, a wren, um, a female sailor in. I think I think it was a female sailor, and of yeah. course, you wouldn't say female sailor these days. You just say a sailor. Yeah. Uh, uh, of a female variety, uh, 
depending on what your pronouns are. Um, <laughs> and she was in the left-hand seat, and John was uh, John was asked to freeze, which is was the pro word for you know just stop and hover. Yeah, and and not not really a a, a favoured thing to do with any helicopter because at four hundred feet, which is a normal operating altitude, it, it uh, puts you into the avoid curve. You know, there, there isn't sufficient height to get a decent um, auto rotation going. Right. And that constrains you uh, in your flare at the bottom. And the flare was, was, uh, had to be pretty finely judged with the, the wasp because it had a high rate of descent and auto rotation. Yeah. Uh, and, and John certainly didn't, wasn't at an altitude where he, he could get into auto rotation. So he did a good job because, um, he uh, entered the water. Uh, the, the aircraft uh, aircraft airframe didn't do too well out of it, uh, but the flotation gear operated okay. And he swam around the aircraft and and uh, got the, the the passenger out safely. Yeah. So that's a thing that he's not often credited with. His back had been damaged, which is a normal thing that happens with a high rate of descent. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I can't give a mental uh, medical uh, prognosis to it, but I just know that he he had suffered a back injury, uh, so he rescued the the ram. And the thing with that that particular engine was, it had already done um, some hours installed on an airframe, and an engineering decision, uh, given that it uh, it had several several hours, it could have had several hundred hours left on the on the on the aircraft subject to maintenance ongoing yeah. uh, on the on the engine it was put back on an airframe uh, to consume those flying hours yeah now I don't know what had originally been rejected for we routinely did soap samples spectronomic oil analysis to tell us when um, Certain components, certain components were were making metal. Uh, perhaps it had just had an unfavourable soap sample. I don't know. Uh, maybe a crack check had, had found cracks in the free power turbine. I don't know. But the donk had been taken off, serviced, and and put back on that aircraft. And I think that was, I think that was its first or second flight after the test flight oh, right. post engine change. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Is it fair for me to draw a line between the fact that um, um, that it failed soon after we we put it back on just to achieve the efficiency of consuming the remaining hours on the engine? That's what I'm doing, but that's what aircrew do. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, it it was just bad bloody luck that it, it chose to um, to fail when John was uh, in a hover and therefore a high powered situation, like he was demanding maximum power of the engine to hover uh, out of ground effect at uh, whatever height he was at. I'm, I'm just saying 400 feet because that was that was the height that you operated on routinely when you were working with uh, North Head, but it could have been lower. It's unlikely to have been higher. So he fell into the water, damaged his back, rescued the, the ran. That's the, the only accident that I can remember. Okay. Uh, apart from the... Um, uh, the tarpaulin being sucked into the, 
the wasp down in Taupo Way, which was well after I left because the RAN provided lone pilots uh, for, for, for a while there for the wasp operation. But that was when I was, when I was involved with the, the RAN fleet here on here. Uh, we, okay. we provided a pilot for, for two years. I was part of setting that up, but, um, but uh, <clears throat> it was one of our pilots was flying down there. I don't know the ins and outs, what a tarpaulin was doing, loafing around the outskirts of the airfield, but uh, it got sucked up into the, um, the main rotor and didn't do the aircraft any good. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, and so how, uh, what, what year was it that you switched from the Royal New Zealand Navy to the Royal Australian Navy? 1978. Um, okay. I, I'd done, I'd done, uh, I think two years or maybe a bit more with the with the New Zealand Navy. That's since since my RN time. Yeah. I was sort of, uh, I was aware that the um, the RN was getting into uh, uh, more more complex embarked operations. My mother was up uh, was an Australian. My Father's family, uh, uh, great great grandfather, uh, came to Australia, Tasmania, to break rocks. You know, on a commuted sentence for for some crime in uh, in uh, the old Dart in 1835. So, so my family does go back in Australia, but I was mainly interested. Um, I was mainly interested in the. Uh, they had more advanced um, embarked aviation. Um, you know, the WASP was quite limited, although it was was a great job. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the Australian Navy was was about to get into the Seahawk. Well, as it turned out, I crossed the Tasman. And by the way, I paid to cross the Tasman. I was not one of your 10-pound bloody poms, all right? So <laughs> yeah. come, at me, come at me with any of that. I had to pay full bloody dollar. Uh, to, to come and they told me it was to stop poaching and I thought yeah right but anyway uh, uh, once I've got that out of the way um, the Seahawk uh, in in uh, Australian inventory was late in coming and therefore we selected the the, the squirrel so um, all my wasp uh, experience came came to good value because we we applied um, pretty much the wasp uh, attitude, the wasp, uh, you know, it's mainly about attitude, you know, your, your state of mind more than yep. anything else with operating a small ship's flight. It's not like a big test match aircraft carrier where you've got the air group and the, and the dibbies, you know, the black shoes. It's, yep. um, it's all part of one corporation, one company, or at least I like to think it's that way. But we, we took that operating attitude with the squirrel and the squirrels um a marvelous uh, embarked airplane uh, uh, is just a delight to fly. Uh, got very useful power margins. Um, it was, I maintain, as capable as the Wasp, even though it was a skidded aircraft. Um, but uh, that that experience was transferred across the Tasman, and of course we had um, XRN flight commanders and. Yeah. In Squadron Seven Two Three Squadron, which which put the squirrel to sea as well, so so it's all one great big cross pollination, really, Dave. Okay, okay. 
Um, and so uh, which ships did you end up uh, flying off with the Australians? Uh, uh, at that time, we had uh, Canterbury, that which was the Leander, not the current one, uh, yep. which you know. That, um, um, I, I flew off both those in, 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 the, in the two years. Um, those were the only aviation capable ships. But uh, as far as with the RAN, uh, I've, I've embarked in, in Melbourne and all the FFGs. I've not embarked in the destroyers because I, I was, um, you know, out to grasp by that stage. Right, right. So um, Melbourne was the aircraft carrier, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, I didn't fly a fixed wing off, uh, off Melbourne, or that, that was one of my grand schemes. So I never, I never got the chance to do that, which is possibly a good thing. Um, I, uh, I flew the... Starflight, which was with the Wessex 31B single engine gazelle. Right. Uh, we had a couple of Wessex 31Bs, uh, which which the RAN first got as diffing aircraft by that stage, which was 1980, 80, 81, 82. We'd, we'd uh, removed uh, the sonar and we just operated it uh, as a utility aircraft in search and rescue. Okay. It's interesting. Uh, very recently, I interviewed um, Max Speedy, who also flew Wessex off Melbourne for a bit. So, I don't know if you listen yeah, to those. Yeah, he's he's uh, well known, well known aviator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, great, great guy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, too right. Max Speedy, a lot of stories about him. I won't tell you any of them. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got uh, three episodes recently with uh, with him. And so um, two of them are totally devoted to him. And, and the third one, uh, it's about him and his, his father uh, during World War II. Um, but yeah, he's an, another, yeah, he, he, another he could tell, I, I know he could, he could tell you, he could tell you, and probably did tell you, heaps, he'd be heaps more interesting than, than I would. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so how long were you in the Royal Australian Navy for? I was uh, got to think about this. Uh, I was in the New Zealand Navy for twelve, and I joined here seventy eight, and left for the first time in two two thousand and three, and then I did another three years on that. So, um, so that's twenty
yeah. it's actually not a bad looking airplane and i saw that some some person had had called the wasp a flying dustbin i've never heard that name before have you no no the flying dustbin i thought please <laughs> i think it's a rather good looking airplane uh it, it actually looks much more functional than 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 the squirrel for example in, in as a military airplane and I was quite surprised that I didn't see more input from from people from from uh, Navy people who who worked well. That was evident to me from their their name anyway, and what they were talking about. So I, th I think probably it is a bit a bit underrated. Um, a lot of people were spectators and and not aware of of um, of the importance of the integration of the the aircraft with the ship, and that's the important thing: the integrated operation of ship and aircraft, that lie naval aviation, and that's why it's significant. It it was, um, and, and you were right to hark back to the uh, the walrus. Yeah. You know the 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 aircraft complemented the ship and the ship plus aircraft became much more capable than it previously was without the aircraft and um and a lot of people miss that even naval people miss that yeah and uh they're probably missing it now also with the unmanned variety yes. uh, uh the the aviation the, the ability to have something that you can deploy and do a job um over the horizon um whatever that carry weapons have sensors hopefully that can can actually apart from the ship pick up pick up uh evidence of 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 something over the horizon that's the that's the thing that's not really understood by quite a lot of people um and and you see the the, the modern the the un the uncrewed variety of airframe on ships and and it's really more about the AI aspects than than what it, what it can do for the ship. Um, in a lot of cases, yes. I can understand that because it's marketing, and yeah. Um, yeah. it's the thing to have is 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 a heap of AI. Uh, but it's the capability of the ship. So to answer your question, yeah, I think it is pretty much underrated, but not in a way that most people probably would rate an aircraft. You know, like helicopter turning upside down or or flying flying very fast or lifting a great big payload yeah. it was an absolutely delightful aircraft to fly very pleasant to fly and uh, it was a great job being your own aviation manager as a very young naval pilot um and uh and and uh, yeah i think i think it is underrated but not for the normal reasons yeah i, I guess uh because the small units there's very few pilots uh and air crew and even the the air force um you know flight crew um at any given time the, the it's a small bunch of people and even over the um 50 something years that we've had helicopters on our ships there won't be a, a huge number of rnzn uh and and even rnzf guys that served on the ships so um and the other thing is that most of what happens happens out at sea where nobody sees it. So yeah, yeah, um, I, I, I made that point when I wrote the email to you the other day. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, oftentimes, 
oftentimes the CO of the ship will give his impression, but it's, it's oftentimes made without uh, a great deal of professional knowledge. And that's not underrating the CO, though, invariably, in my experience, bloody very competent guys. And and that bloke who wrote up uh, Joe Tunnicliffe, rest in peace, um, you, you know, I don't know who that was, uh, who was the, his CO, but he did the right thing by Joe to get, get him uh, Air Force Cross. Right. Um, right. for that work that he did uh, rescuing that crewman off the merchant vessel. Yes. yes. Uh, but, but I don't suppose many people know about the WASP at all or, or embarked aviation. That's always been the case. Yeah. Uh, even yeah. even amongst navies, um, uh, you'll, you'll often find that um, people that, um, Navy people that have not operated with an aeroplane embedded in their ship uh, will not have a good idea. Uh, about what it can do. Actually, a, a, a really important point there too for something as small as the Royal New Zealand Navy is that you guys would be either out at sea or when you came home, you were at Hobsonville, which wasn't a Navy base. So, um, you know, you weren't at Devonport with all the other, other sailors. So I guess they didn't really see much of you guys, did they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you spent, you spent uh, uh, in, my, in my time, you probably spared, spent equal time at both places, oh, okay. I had an Air Force, I had an Air Force house at uh, Hobsonville, but I spent yeah. at least half the time on ships, and and you certainly did officer of the day down on the ship, and you certainly had a part of ship to run the flight deck and uh, to look after bits and pieces because the bloody PTIs would shift their bloody Nautiluses into the hangar as soon as, as soon as you bloody disappeared, so you'd have to get down there and <laughs> and. Uh, Get him out of the hangar and all the rest of the people encroaching on your real estate. So it was a, <laughs> an endless, endless battle with the uh, with the buffer, you know, the chief boatswain's mate and the and the the XO who wanted your real estate or wanted to paint something the wrong bloody paint or the wrong colour. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm I'm getting a bit too tribal here, but uh, you you, uh, you you had to you had to maintain a presence on board, no doubt about it. Right. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Well, hopefully this uh, this interview will have enlightened a lot of people. It certainly enlightened me uh, on what you guys did and 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 about the WASP itself. And um, I mean, it's it's one of those aircraft that I've always thought was pretty cool. And I used to see them when I was based at Hobsonville myself, um, but I didn't know a lot about them. So it's, where, it's been where, fascinating. Where were, at, where were you at Hobsonville, David? Uh, I, I went through um, number one technical training school when I was training as safety and surface. So, um, yeah, was that was that uh, in the in the sixties or seventies? Uh, no, that was in the nineties, nineteen ninety ninety one. You should have said that more sort of delicately. I think David you should have <laughs> just a little bit after that probably would have done. <laughs> okay, okay, uh, um, yeah. So, so did you ever fly in the in the what? No, no. Well, I, the the closest I ever got is we got because we were actually in the same hangar as the wasp. Um, our school backed onto it. Uh, we got taken round to the other side to have a look at the wasps up close as part of our training, just looking at the uh, safety gear that was on them and and uh, just a general look around. But that's the closest I ever got, and most of it, it was usually them just flying over our barracks at two o'clock in the morning or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, well, if, if, if I can provide any more sort of information, uh, I'm happy to. Um, yeah. I hope this hasn't been too boring. Oh, no, it's been fascinating. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, they, I'll, I'll, uh, I've, got, I've got to um, answer two questions. The ship's company of Hermes and how many people in a commando. That, uh, I'll, I'll answer both those questions. Thank you. Um, and I'll send you the... Um, the flight notes for the one of the very first embarked flights in the Royal Navy. Yeah, uh, that'd be that'd be great. Thank you. Uh, you might find them of interest. It it, it really really is interesting. Yeah. And apart from that, um, it's great talking to you, Dave. And sorry about the uh, rickety start. I was sitting here like a pudding waiting for <laughs> it to come up on um, Outlook, and and it didn't arrive. So just as well, you said, uh, you know, you're there. Yeah, no, it's all good. Um, no, I, I really appreciate you taking the time, Chris. And um, yeah, thanks very much. Okay, you're, you're welcome, Dave. I'll, I'll speak to you later. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs> <laughs>